It's good to see you to worship the Lord this evening. And why don't we turn once again our Bibles back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, where we left off last time in Isaiah 29. We didn't quite get out the back end of chapter 29 together. Remember that contextually, as we're looking at these things here, Isaiah is speaking here to the people of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, particularly because of the threat that they are recognizing of the Assyrian Empire who has already conquered the northern kingdom and is now seeming to threaten the southern kingdom and potentially indicating that they are likely to conquer the city of Jerusalem. Uh, And it's in the midst of the fear of these things that Isaiah has been speaking to the people of the southern kingdom to Jerusalem, the capital city there. And as we come to our section where we're at this evening here, chapter Uh, 29, we continue with a few of these woes that the Lord has been pronouncing. Again, the word woe is an indication of a warning, and one of the things he's been warning them about is putting their confidence in other things rather than in the Lord. Now, as we pick up in chapter 29, verse 20, where we left off last time, here we read, for the terrible one is brought to nothing. Again, keep in mind, they are looking at something that looks very threatening, it looks terrible to them, like the outcome is going to be the absolute worst-case scenario, catastrophes on the horizon. It looks like it is a guarantee that everything is going to fail and is going to fall apart catastrophically, to which God then says, for the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed And all who watch for iniquity are cut off, they're removed, who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. Remember, the gate of the city was kind of the central location. It was where the judges would meet. It's where plans of war would be made. So whenever there's a reference to the gate of a city, it was a very evident, predominant place where their defense and their warfare was strategized and to turn aside the just by empty words. Now, seems here in verses 20 and 21, what we have is basically a reference to, in the near sense, how God was going to make sure that though it looked like the end was going to be terrible, it looked like that the king of Assyria and his forces were going to conquer the southern kingdom, even as they did the northern kingdom, that in the near sense, that God was going to make sure that the Assyrian invasion was going to come to nothing. And as he says here, the terrible one, he's probably referring to, for example, the leader of the Assyrian army, the general, the, the king of Assyria at that time. And he says, look, that terrible one is going to be brought to nothing. Though he is scornful and he is mocking and scoffing, he is going to be consumed And all who are watching to bring to pass their iniquity, their evil intentions are going to be cut off by the Lord and by his power. Now, as we look at those verses there, in a a fuller sense, often we talk about the near fulfillment or the present tense of what God's speaking about. But oftentimes, again, remember that God is outside of the time continuum. So at times God, when you speak prophetically, would be referring to something in the near, but also God being able to see all the way down into the future As we look at verses 20 and 21, I think it's also in a fuller sense, a very fitting picture perhaps of how when the Lord Jesus himself returns back to this earth, that he is going to dethrone, if you would, a greater personage who is a terrible one, and that is the Antichrist. Uh, And so some see a reference here in verse 20, how the terrible one being brought to nothing, the one who is scornful, who was making a man offender by a word. Again, anyone, verse 21, who would speak against the Antichrist, even a word against the Antichrist, was at the threat or the fear of the loss of their life, as will be the case during the time of the tribulation. But when Jesus returns, the end of Revelation tells us that he's going to overthrow the Antichrist, the ultimate terrible one, will be brought to nothing, all of his plans and his endeavors to be a replacement of Christ, to be one offering himself instead of Christ, that all of that will be brought to nothing at the return of the Lord when he comes back and puts an end to what looked like an inconquerable situation. Verse 22, he goes on to say, and therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham, 
concerning the house of Jacob. Now, you notice oftentimes that there's this back and forth reference, Israel being referred to at times to the house of Jacob as well. And again, remember that was, you know, Jacob's original name ultimately was changed over to Israel, which means governed by God or prince of God. Jacob, Yaakov, means heel catcher, and it was the name given to him as he grabbed his brother's heel when he came out of the womb, and that became very representative of how Jacob lived his entire life. He was a conniver, he was a deceiver. He was always striving and manipulating things. Uh, and God at times will refer to the nation of Israel when he's wanting to reference them in regards to their times of disobedience. Uh, again, even in the tribulation, the Bible at times gives indication of the time of the tribulation when God's working among the nation of Israel as that being the time of Jacob's trouble. And again, it'll be a time when there's great trouble coming upon the nation of Israel. And it's again, the time of Jacob's trouble because Jacob is typically a reference to the house of Israel in their disobedient state when they're being rebellious. Uh, but God here says of them who he redeemed, again, he redeemed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The redemption plan began with Abraham and God made a covenant with Abraham. And despite the rebellion of man and the failures of mankind, God always stays faithful to his covenant. God always finishes his promises with people. And so here he says the God, the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob says, Jacob shall not now be ashamed. The idea is disgraced ultimately, nor shall his face grow dim or excuse me, grow pale. But when he sees his children, the offspring of Jacob, Israel, the work, God says, of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name. The idea is they will now reverence God or give glory to God and hallow the Holy One of Jacob. And the fear of the God of Israel, these also who erred in spirit, so at one time they were erring in spirit, living disobedient, these who once erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. So again, when God mightily intervenes, as he did numerous times, this was a pattern with Israel's history, when God mightily intervenes, he would remove the prior shame, the prior guilt, the, the times when they were erring in spirit and they were off track, and it would be evident when there was an intervention of God because it was always very clear as a work of restoration and forgiveness and healing what happened among God's people that it would be evident that it was the work of God's hand. And here he describes another time, maybe even a reference to the time of the regathering of Israel, maybe even a time during uh, the, the, the tribulation going in then to the kingdom age when God's people recognize Zechariah 12 says that the spirit of grace and supplication we poured out upon the house of Israel and they will look upon Jesus and recognize that he's the one who was pierced and they'll mourn over him because they realize in repentance, oh my goodness, we refuse the Messiah. He came to his own and his own received him not and how for, you know, generations they were erring in spirit, not recognizing Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach, whom God had sent to them according to their prophecies. But the Bible makes it very clear that in the last days, there will be a great spiritual awakening among the Jews. They will recognize that they have erred in spirit. And at that time, it will be a work of the hand of God in their midst among the Jews that all of a sudden there will be a turning of their hearts and it will be evident that it's a work of God because it will result in two things. One, clearly a renewed reverence and a worship towards the Lord. That's what verse 23 is describing. They will now hallow my name, the Holy One of Jacob and the fear of the God of Israel. So there'll be an expression of worship, which will be an evidence of the work of God's hand in their midst, as well as notice that there also will be a real change of their lives. Those who once, 20, verse 24 says, erred in spirit will now come to understanding. And the greatest understanding they'll come to is recognizing that Jesus is their Messiah. He is their Savior. And so all the house of Israel, the Bible says, will be saved in the sense of recognizing who Jesus really was and realizing they have been erring in spirit, their blindness, and will come to an understanding. And, you know, I think whenever there's a work of God's spirit, among his people in any way, that the same thing always comes to pass. That when we see, like Israel described here, 
It says, when he sees his children, in other words, there's, there's offspring being produced, and the reason there's offspring, there's new life, there's new birth, God says, verse 23, is because a work of my hands in the midst. And when it is a work of the hand of God, that's what God does. God multiplies not only national descendants, but he multiplies spiritual descendants. And when there's a work of God's hand, people are born again, new lives come into the kingdom, the family of God expands, and with that, there's a renewed interest in reverence toward God, there's a, there's a, a desire to worship God, to hallow God's name, and also what happens is there's a change of lives. When there's a work of the hand of God in the midst of any people, people who were once erring in spirit, who were living in wrong ways, who were confused and blinded, all of a sudden come to clear understanding, and instead of complaining and grumbling, now they're interested in being teachable and learning doctrine. The idea is learning the ways of God because there's been a change in their hearts. Now, as we come to chapter 30, notice we come back again to another one of these woes, and here again God speaks regarding his people, and he says, chapter 30, verse 1, "'Woe to the rebellious children,' says the Lord, "'who take counsel, but not of me.'" who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in Pharaoh, the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So what this is describing here was exactly what was a tendency, which seemed very natural and rational, where when Assyria was encroaching upon them, and again, the Assyrians, I hate to use this analogy, but it probably really paints the picture, the Assyrian Empire and the way they treated people, when they would conquer territories and when they would invade areas and people groups, the way that they would treat people barbarically in the cruelty, I mean, they were like the ancient terrorists of their day. I mean, the stuff that they did to people decapitating people, you know, flaying people's skin off of their body. I mean, their torture tactics and the stuff that they did was barbaric. It was vile. It was cruel. It was, it was just completely inhuman, much like terroristic people do in these days when they unleash their venomous wrath against humanity and behave in the ways that they do. And look, you have to understand that would terrify people. That's, that would, you know, shake them to the core. That was why, remember, Jonah did not want to go and preach to the people of Nineveh because that was the Assyrians. And, and the last thing Jonah wanted to do was go to those people and tell them God's truth and take a chance that God might be nice and merciful to them and forgive them. And Jonah didn't want that mission, and that's why he was so opposed to that as well as the fact that potentially maybe he was concerned that if he went there that you know his own welfare would be at risk. But again, we have to understand what the Assyrians really like, and so it makes complete sense, though it was not right, why when the Assyrians had already conquered the north, they brought a great deal of devastation to the southern kingdom of Judah, and now they've laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And it looks like curtains for the southern kingdom is going to come to pass, that as fear gripped their hearts, as confusion set in and uncertainty and all these same things that we at times experience in our human emotions as well, that they look instantaneously to find solutions for their problems. And so what they began to do, and God refers to it here in verses 1 and 2, is, and God refers to this, notice, interesting, as being rebellious against him as his children. Because rather than look to their father to take care of them, to be their protector, to be their defender, to be the one to give them advice and guidance of what to do from his greater wisdom as a father looking to God. Instead, it tells us here that what they did was they resorted to the benefits and what they thought would be helpful by utilizing the resources of the world system. They went down to Egypt in the southern area, and Egypt at this time had a pretty extensive military force. And so they went to Egypt looking to hire them for mercenary support. They thought if we go to the Egyptians, we can hire them. They can be our protection. We'll pay them. They can come and help us throw off the Assyrian invasion. 
And God here describes them doing that, trying to take matters into their own hands. And he describes it by saying here in verse 1 that they were rebellious in doing this because God says they were taking counsel, but it was not of me. In other words, they were seeking counsel among those around them, worldly ideas, and they were taking counsel among themselves. But God says, no one's seeking my counsel on the matter. They're not looking to the counsel of God. They're looking to the counsel of mankind and worldly ideas and worldly ways of handling problems. How does the world solve its problems? And he says, in light of that, they're devising plans, and that's what they're doing, making plans. Hey, this is what we should do. This is reasonable. We got to be responsible here. So we, we should take what wealth we have. Let's go down to Egypt. Makes total sense. Lots of other nations have done it. Other nations have hired Egypt, and Egypt has come, and so they're saying, look, this is a good plan. So they devise their little plan, how they're going to solve their dilemma, fix their situation. They devise their plan to go down to Egypt, but look what God says. God says they're devising their plans, but their plans are not of my spirit. They're plans of the human spirit. They're plans of human ideas and logical reasoning or worldly patterns or ways that the world does things. And so God rebukes his people here for seeking counsel and advice from the world and not seeking counsel and advice from him. And God rebukes his people here for making, notice, their own plans, devising plans. And we're good at planning as people sometimes. We are master schemers. And they're devising their plans Nothing wrong with having a plan, but God says the plans that they're devising are plans that are not of my spirit. They're not of the spirit of God. They're not led by the spirit of God. They're not based in the truths of the word of God. They are just human plans and scheming ideas of humanity, and they were putting their dependence upon human ideas and efforts for solutions from the world system. And Egypt is always a representation in the word of God of the world system. And so they're going to the world system instead of relying on God. And as a result of that, notice they're offending God because they're disregarding God in the process. They're disregarding God like he's somehow a dysfunctional father. It's almost like saying My, our father won't take care of us. He's not going to protect us. We can't count on dad to take care of us. We can't count on our father to, you know, to shield us or to give us wisdom. So in a sense, they're disregarding God, and God refers to what they're doing there as rebellious. And you know, as we read that, truth be told, uh, there are times when we can do in similar ways things like what they're doing there. There are times when we can go and seek counsel and take counsel from you know, people that we know, and maybe we ask non-Christian people at our job or our friends, and we're asking people for their counsel and their input, and then we start devising our own plans, how we're going to take care of our situation. We got our own little solution we're going to come up with to fix our problem, and the whole time we're taking counsel from this person and devising our little plan to handle a matter. God says, but none of that is of me, and none of that's from my spirit. That's where we should be seeking counsel from, from God, right? He's a wonderful counsel. If you remember just previous in our chapters, we read in chapter 28, verse 29, that God is the one who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. That was just a chapter ago. <laughs> the Lord is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. If we need counsel, yes, but seek counsel from the Lord. Seek godly counsel. Seek counsel from the Lord himself directly. Jeremiah, God says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. God will give counsel directly. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is our comforter, our helper, our paracletus. One of the terms to translate that is our counselor, the internal counselor who dwells inside of us, who can illuminate and give us guidance from his spirit. Go to godly people who have a relationship with God, who can at least be led of the spirit of God and not the spirit of the world system to give you counsel, to help you if you need to you know, make a matter, something that you need to work through so that you're not being guilty of what he says here, devising plans, but plans that aren't of the spirit of God because he says, when you do such and when I do such as they were doing such, God says they were basically adding sin to sin. In other words, they were just compounding bad decisions. And it's never a good thing to take one bad situation and compound the situation and make it worse by making more bad decisions to try and fix your bad circumstances. 
That's something we never want to get ourselves into. If we're already facing a difficult situation, whether it's something we created because of our own poor choices, they were facing some of the challenges they were because of some of their rebellion and turning away from God, and now they were facing some of the consequences of that, or whether it's just we find ourselves in a dangerous, precarious, or a scary situation, what we never want to do is make the situation worse by making more bad decisions on top of our existing bad situation. So he says here, be careful of that. He says, they're going down to Egypt, but they've not, he says, verse two, asked my advice. And imagine God looking at this thinking, why are they asking my advice? You know, I have to wonder, does God ever say that to us sometimes? How come they never asked my advice? I mean, they asked this person's advice, and they asked the advice of the world and the advice of this professional. Oh, we need to talk to them because they're a professional. They're certified. They have a degree in this. And look, I, I don't care if somebody has a degree or they're certified, they're a professional, and you know, people can offer. But there's nobody's advice better to ask than God's. And I don't ever want to be in a situation where God says, boy, you asked everybody else's advice, but you never asked my advice on the matter. And here God's rebuking his people for doing that. He says they're trying to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and trust in the shadow that is the protection of Egypt. And look what God says is going to happen. Verse 3, therefore, in light of doing that, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt, the protective shadow of Egypt, shall become your humiliation. They'd be disgraced. For his princes were at Zon, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. These were chief cities of Egypt. And they were all ashamed of a people, notice, who could not benefit them or be of help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. So in time, reliance upon the help of Egypt, God says, he tells them in advance, you can do that, but it's not going to benefit you at all. So God says, you can try that. You can see if the world system can fix your problems. You can look to the solutions of mankind, and you can attempt to solve your own problem with human efforts and carnal attempts and fleshly reliances and looking to the resources and the things the world has. But he says, what we find whenever we do that, as they found as well historically, is dependence upon Egypt and the worldly resources only resulted in disappointment. It didn't help them. It didn't benefit them whatsoever. It did not solve their problem. It only led to shame and humiliation where the effort failed, and then they realized afterwards, why didn't we seek God's counsel? Why didn't we just seek God's advice? Why did we just devise our own plan and try and work our own plan in the flesh if we only would have sought God's counsel and followed his plan? Because God does have a plan. And if we only would have yielded to that, and again, so sad that they found themselves on the back end of that, you know, disgraced and humiliated because Egypt did not come through for them. They went to Egypt and Egypt never followed through to provide what they needed. He says, I'm cautioning you in advance. He says, they're not going to benefit you. Verse six, the burden against the beasts of the south, which is a reference to Egypt, the beasts of the south, southern to them through a land of trouble and anguish. So God pictures them now going down to Egypt, as he just described, through a land of trouble and anguish, the desert regions down through the Sinai, for which came the lioness and the lion and the viper and the flying serpent through a hard territory in the journey. They will carry, notice, their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels. So God pictures them making the long, arduous journey through dangerous territory down through the Sinai to go down to Egypt. Notice with their caravans, their donkeys, and their camels. And he says, and all of their treasures. In other words, all the wealth and all the resources they have, they have loaded on these animals and they're going down in caravans to Egypt with vast amounts of wealth because they're thinking, hey, with all this wealth, we can buy ourselves protection. We can get ourselves the services that we need if we bring our wealth down there. And he pictures how despite all the great financial resources that they brought down to Egypt to pay for services, to get solutions for their problems, he said they brought all their treasures down there to a people, verse 6, 
who shall not profit. Verse 7, for the Egyptians, God says, shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab hem Shebeth. Rahab is a term at times in the Old Testament used to refer to Egypt specifically. The word basically is a reference to pride, and hem Shebeth literally is translated to sit idle or to do nothing. So God says, you can go down to Egypt, but you're, you're searching for help and all the wealth and all the money you're going to spend. Going to Egypt, you're going to find, here's what Egypt is going to be to you. They are going to be Egypt, the do-nothing people. <laughs> you're going to pay them all this money, and they're not even going to show up to the battle. They're not even going to follow through. They're not going to help you. They're going to take all your money, God says, and they'll gladly take all your money, but in their pride, they're going to sit there idle when the battle comes. They're going to be of no benefit and no help. They're not even going to come to your defense. And so God says, you're going to spend all your resources, you're going to dump all your money into that, and you're going to find, here's what it results in, nothing. It'll be a do-nothing solution at the end. You'll find yourself in the same situation. Ultimately, God will have to step in and will intervene to protect and deliver them anyway. God says, verse 8, now go, write it before them on a tablet. So God's asking for a record of these very things. Go write it on a tablet, he says. Note it on a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. So notice God here in verse 8 asks for it to be written down. God says, write it down. Take a record of this, he says. I want it to be written down and known what God has said, and that written record would provide then accountability. So that the documentation could prove, look, this is what God said. It's not like it wasn't clear. There's a written record of the word of God, and yet though there was a written record of the word of God, God spoke this to inform them. Nonetheless, they chose to rebel against what God clearly had spoken to them. And he says in verse 9, the reason is because God says this is a rebellious people. He calls them lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. So God knew that they were going to rebel against what he said. Though he spoke it, though it was written down, his written word on a scroll, a record in front of them written down, God said, I know that nonetheless, though they're accountable for it and it's written, they're not going to listen because they don't want to obey the law of the Lord. They want to govern themselves. They want to set their own standards and live according to their own boundaries and their own ways. And though they heard the truth, they refused to respond to it obediently. It wasn't a matter of not knowing. It was a matter of just not doing. God spoke it. In fact, he even says there was a written record of it. But God says, sadly, they were interesting. He calls them lying children. In other words, they were lying to themselves because they were choosing to follow error and were purposely rejecting truth and rebelling against God's voice. He says, verse 10, describing the condition of their hearts in their rebellion. Look what he describes them as, verse 10. He says of these people, these children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, these were those who would give vision and speak words from the Lord. They were saying to the seers, do not see. <laughs> and to the prophets who would speak God's word to them, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things, prophesied deceits. Then they said to these prophets, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. In other words, get out of our way. Stop telling us the truth. Get out of our way because we want to do things our way, not God's way. They say to them, verse 11, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. In other words, they, they literally want to remove God's presence because they don't want to be accountable for what is right and what the truth is. So they're telling the prophets and the, those who would speak for God, just get out of our way, would you? Get out of here. Leave us alone. Get out of our way. We don't want to hear what you're saying because it's making us feel uncomfortable. It's making us feel accountable. And we don't want to have to answer to God. They say, we want the Holy One of Israel to cease from being in our presence. We want to do everything we can to get away from God's presence because then we feel accountable 
if the light of the Lord is among us, showing us. So notice the people, clearly you can tell from verse 10 and 11, the way God describes them, the people did not want to hear what was right. That was the condition of their hearts. They literally didn't want to hear what was right. They just wanted to hear, we might say, what was easy. What was easy to swallow, what was entertaining to hear, he says there in verse 10, well, what a great description. They were saying to the prophets who would speak for God, do not prophesy to us, I have this underlined, right things. Think about that. They literally were telling those who were supposed to speak for God, listen, please don't tell us right things. Please, tell us wrong things. Just tell us smooth things. Be if you can just be smooth when you speak to us, if you can just be a really smooth communicator, keep it entertaining, keep it relevant, say things that just slip down like just a satisfying, don't say something that's hard to digest, just you stay smooth in your presentation, say things that are smooth and easy to swallow, they don't challenge us, don't confront us, don't tell us right things, just tell us smooth things. And boy, I tell you, nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> The same problem happens with humanity again and again throughout history. You know, doesn't Paul himself speak about when he talks to Timothy, how in the last days, when he talks about how perilous times would come, he describes there how there will be people who would no longer endure sound doctrine, but would look for teachers and instructors who would say what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, just, just scratch the itch. Just say something that just makes us comfortable entertain us, you know, don't, I mean, don't give us heavy stuff, don't, don't talk to us about sin, or don't confront what might be wrong in our life, don't, don't tell us what's right in God's sight. They don't want to hear those things because they don't want to address the condition of their lives. They really just want to a degree like a spiritual spa treatment or, or a spiritual entertainment process rather than an encounter with God and really getting to know God and to respond to God and to be changed by God and, and to grow in one's relationship with God. Again, the, the idea, entertain us with nice things that are easy to hear and easy to swallow. Don't challenge us. Don't confront us with right things. They actually preferred to be deceived. I mean, that's in essence what God saw their hearts saying. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy to us deceits. We would rather be deceived then hear something that's right and true and have to respond to it. Boy, that's a scary heart condition for somebody to be in spiritually. You know, would to God that we would never, ever, 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 and if I do, shoot me and drag me out into the back alley and leave me there, become a group of people who would have that kind of a heart condition, who would not want to hear genuinely, what does God have to say? The whole purpose of a prophet was to speak what God wanted spoken to just speak for God, to speak God's word. That was the, the purpose of prophecy. And yet here they were asking the prophets to disobey, to rebel against God themselves because they wanted to rebel saying, don't prophesy, don't tell us what God says is right. Please just make us feel comfortable, entertain us. Boy, that's a scary, scary place when people no longer want to hear the truth. They just want to have their way. That's a scary, scary heart condition spiritually. And this was where God said the people were at this time. Verse 12, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, in other words, because you've disesteemed the truth, you despise, you have animosity towards the word of truth, the word of what God was wanting to say to them, and trust instead in oppression and perversity, and rely on them. Interesting, that's the way he's describing Egypt and the world system. It was a system of oppression, mistreating people. It was a system of perversity, meaning it was distorted. The truth was all mixed up. It was crooked and bent, and God says his people had come to take trust and reliance in the world system that was perverse and ruining people's lives. Therefore, verse 13, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall. So God's painting a picture here. He says the outcome is going to be this. As that pathway continues, the pressure is going to mount like the pressure mounting, strong water pressure 
causing a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And verse 14, and he, that's capitalized because it's a reference to God, God shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel, like taking a vessel, a clay vessel, and just letting it fall to the ground on the hard concrete and just shattering in a multitude of pieces, who is broken in pieces, he shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. So God describes the outcome here. Notice, and he's painting a picture here. God's painting a picture to caution what the outcome is of refusing God's word of rejecting God's word, of not wanting to hear what's right, hardening your heart. You know, the Bible tells us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And this is what the people were doing. They were hardening God, their heart against God's word. They did not want to hear what was right or true. And God describes a horrible outcome that was going to come to pass because they were being receptive to lying voices, the resulting outcome he describes here is going to be like a large wall that begins to bulge and you see the cracks and you can tell, oh my goodness, that whole thing is going to come crumbling down. And it is going to be a major mess and a catastrophe when that whole wall just comes breaking through. He pictures here like a bulge in a high wall where the walls come crashing down because things can't hold up under the pressure when there's rebellion and disobedience and living in a way contrary to God's will. It is not possible to live in continuous rebellion to God's way and to God's will and think that one can maintain stability. It doesn't happen because part of the reason all of our lives in this room is broken is because of sin. Sin fractures our lives. It breaks our lives. And when a person or a people group or a nation continues to live in opposition to God, opposition to God, opposition to God's way, to God's word, to, to God's voice. The pressure mounts, and all of a sudden, things start to crack and starts to crumble, and like the wall, it just starts to bulge. And eventually, at a certain point, the pressure can't hold up any longer, and a catastrophic, destructive result comes. And this is what God's describing here was going to happen to the people. He said, it's going to be like a breakthrough suddenly in a wall in an instant. It's all going to come crashing down. And he says, it's also going to be just like taking a potter's vessel and breaking it on the ground. And no longer is it useful anymore because it's broken and shattered into pieces. He said, it can't take fire from the hearth, nor can it be used to carry water from the cistern. The idea is it's such a brokenness that if things are shattered, and what their intended purpose was gets ruined and, and, and no longer useful anymore. And because of the brokenness that really was brought upon themselves because of the continuous rejection and rebellion to what God was saying. Verse 15, he goes on to say, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, God says, you shall flee and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift and 1,000 shall flee at the threat of one and at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. So look what God begins to, to speak about here. Again, it shows you just the, the patience of God, the mercy of God, despite their rebellion, right, which is clearly the context of what we're looking at here, God kindly extends an offer to them of deliverance. In the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of them living contrary to God, not listening to his voice, God's still extending opportunity up until the last moment to them saying to them, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In other words, God says, if you would return to me, if you turn away from the path you're on, if you would just return to me, and if you would find rest and reliance upon me rather than scheming and trying to devise your own plans and do your own thing, he says, if you would just return to me and rest in full reliance upon me, God says, 
you'll experience my deliverance. I'll intervene. I'll rescue you out of that situation. I'll come to your aid. I'll come to your help. They need to rest and fully trust upon the Lord, letting go of all their scheming and wrongdoing and trying to work angles and make things work out with their own solutions. They needed to just put their complete confidence in the Lord and God would even rescue them from their current situation. And so God says to them here, listen, I'm inviting you. He says, return to me. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. And notice God says what he was looking for was a quiet confidence would end up being their strength. Just a quiet confidence in the Lord. The idea of a quiet confidence is not erratic, crazy, frenzy, trying to, to run all around, fix this, try that, try this, fix that, have a backup plan, three other backup plans. God says, no, stop. Just quietly put confidence in me and let me work. Let me work, God says. In quiet and confidence, just a quiet confidence, he says, that's where you'll actually find strength. Why? Because we exhaust ourselves and we weary ourselves when we're running around scheming, manipulating, trying to do all these things to work everything out and devise our own plans, and we're exhausted because we're doing it all in the flesh. And God says, look, do you want to be saved? Do you want me to intervene? Do you want to have strength? He says, just return, rest in me, have a quiet confidence, and there you'll find strength. But sadly, notice, he says, verse 16, but they didn't want anything of that. They said, no, no, we're going to get some of those Egyptian horses, and we're going to make sure we got a getaway plan, and we're going to make sure we got swift, fast horses so that we can flee when the Assyrians come in and and... I mean, we understand, yeah, you can pray, but you got to do some practical stuff too. And so they say, look, we got to get some horses and have ourselves a backup plan and have some options and be able to take matters into our own hands. And God says, well, truth be told, God says, um, you're going to need those horses because you're not going to depend upon me. God says, ultimately, they would be defeated to a great degree. That's what he's describing in verse 17 when he says, one soldier uh, or excuse me, 1,000 troops would flee at the threat of one, Egypt, uh, of one Assyrian soldier. The idea is they'd be overcome with fear and panic, and they would basically, honestly, if you notice the verses, would be having an experience of the exact opposite of what God promised he wanted for the nation of Israel in their military campaigns. God told them that when they lived obediently and they followed his word and they trusted him, that one... Jew would make a thousand enemy soldiers flee and that God would do the exact opposite of what's described here. Now God's saying it's the opposite. God's saying, because you're not depending upon me, you're going to have insecurity and fear. And he says, now what you're going to find is 1,000 of you are going to flee at just the threat of just one person because they realized that their own resources would not be sufficient and they would exhaust themselves until they were left like a, like a barren pole sitting up on top of a mountain. Verse 18, again, notice God goes from speaking of their rebellion to talking about restoration. Again, an incredible testimony of the grace and the kindness of the Lord. He says, therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice, meaning that he always does that which is right, Blessed are all those who wait for him. So notice, in the midst of describing their rebellion, in the midst of talking about how they, they continue to persist in their wrongdoing, now all of a sudden the prophet shifts as the Holy Spirit directs him and says, despite Israel's failure, despite Israel's rebellion, in light of those very things, the Lord was going to patiently endure, and he says that the Lord will wait. The Lord will wait. The idea there is like the father when the prodigal son went out and went and lived chaotically and rebelliously and squandered all his father's wealth with prodigal and wasteful living. And what did the father do? He just waited for his son to come home. He just patiently endured and he waited, hoping and praying that his son would be done with his rebellious ways. And the Lord says here, the Lord will wait Notice, not so that when his people come back home, he can really grill them 
I hope you had your fill out there. I hope you enjoyed your misery out there. Look what he says. The Lord will wait so that he can be gracious to you. The Lord waits for the erring person to return because he can't wait to be nice to him. He's basically, I'm waiting. Man, I'm waiting. Would you please come home? Would you please stop rebelling? Would you please stop living in sin and destructive ways? I want to be gracious to you. I want to bless you. I want to do good things in your life. I want to forgive you. And he says he's waiting literally to be gracious. Why? Because in being gracious to rebellious people who've repented and come back home, he says in that is how he will be exalted. Because he's exalted in all of his goodness. Because Romans says where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. And the Lord is often the most exalted in his graciousness, in his mercy, in his kindness. He says, therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you for the Lord is a God of justice. In other words, he always does what's right in situations. And again, we should look at that and recognize that we serve a God who changes not. And even as God was waiting and is always waiting and was for the nation of Israel for them to turn back to him, every time they turned away from him, how many times when you read Old Testament history do you realize again and again God waited for them to turn back, and when they turned back, he'd be forgiving and merciful and gracious? And look, the same is true in all of our lives. If you're here this evening and in some way you have been erring or rebelling and getting off track, the Lord's waiting. He's just waiting for you. He's waiting for you to be done with that. He's waiting for you to be done with the path that's rebellious and that's destructive and that's making you miserable. And I hope it is <laughs> because he's waiting for you to turn back to him, not so he can be harsh and cruel and really drive it. He's waiting to be gracious to you. He wants to forgive you and restore you and put his blessing back upon your life again and show you his mercy so that, again, he'll be exalted in your life because you'll be blown away going, I can't believe that he was so gracious to me after I did that. Can't believe he was so nice to me. And again, but this is how God oftentimes is exalted and how he demonstrates his goodness. He says, blessed are those who wait for him. Verse 19, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem and shall weep no more, he says. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. He hears it. He will answer you. So again, he speaks of the restoration of the people of Israel back in the land, back there at Jerusalem, restoring them back. And he says there's coming a time where though they had been weeping and grieving and mourning, he says you shall weep no more because he's going to be very gracious to you in the season ahead. He was going to be very kind and bless their lives and be gracious in such a way that their tears would be dried up, their grieving and their weeping would begin to diminish because his grace would be so abundant. He says, you shall weep no more for he'll be very gracious to you. And at the sound of your cry, again, God, like, like a loving parent, hears the sound of the cry of a child. And when he hears it, he will answer. And though the Lord gives you, he says, verse 20, the bread of adversity... And the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Notice, who was the one that to a degree gave and allowed them to experience some of their adversity and their affliction? Verse 20, he says, the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. And God has no problem because the Bible says whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens, he disciplines, right? And so the Lord in his measured way and in his kindness, even knowing that whatever it's going to take to get us at times maybe to turn back, just like he would with Israel, he would let him go through difficulty and hardship and adversity and affliction. And he says the Lord was the one giving the adversity and giving the affliction. Adversity is hard times. Affliction is pain. Not much has changed for you and I in our personal lives. And sometimes the Lord will use, if need be, adversity and affliction if that's what it takes to get a person's attention, to get them back on track. God is not opposed to letting you and I go through a little bit of hardship circumstantially, 
even letting you and I experience a little bit of pain and affliction in our lives, if that's the thing that causes us to turn back towards him, and so God allowed them to go through that, and he says that as they turn back, notice, he says, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes will now see your teachers. The idea there speaks of is the truth would then become evident. It would become obvious. No longer would they be unteachable. It would now be very clear what God was saying, and you shall hear then notice a word behind you. Notice very different when they didn't want to hear God's word. Notice the change now. This is restoration. Your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. So they would have renewed guidance from the Lord. He says, all of a sudden, their ears would be attentive to the voice of the Lord. And they would hear God speaking to them as his people. It says they would hear a word behind them. The idea is the presence of God being near to them, that when they were about to turn to the right hand or they were about to turn to the left hand, which way do I go, Lord, to the right or to the left, that they would continuously hear the voice of their shepherd behind them saying, this is the way. Walk in it. This is the way, walk in it. And that God would continue to speak to them and direct them. And look, how wonderful to have that kind of guidance from the Lord. That when we have to make decisions sometimes, do I turn to the right or do I, do I turn to the left? That God's not gonna abandon us in those situations. That God is able to speak to us. And for you and I, the Bible promises us that again, we have the indwelling spirit of the Lord inside of us and he speaks to us and he guides us. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his thrill small voice. And how wonderful to know that God does not leave us directionless in our lives. What wonderful words, what wonderful promises that we can know, that we can listen if we're willing to listen, that we can listen and know that the Lord understands sometimes we have to decide do we turn to the right hand or to the left, and that in those times, if we're willing to listen, the Lord will say, this is the way. Now walk in it. I don't know, perhaps what maybe you may even be navigating through this evening. In some ways, as I read verse 21, what comes to my mind is sometimes I think we find ourselves, do I go right, do I go left? And, and we're, we're kind of thinking maybe I'm supposed to go left or we're thinking maybe I'm supposed to go right. And maybe in those occasions, sometimes the word of the Lord to us is, this is the way. Stop being double-minded. This is the way. Now walk in it. This is the way. Not a matter of, I don't know which way, sometimes like Micah chapter 6, God said to Micah in chapter 6, he has shown thee, O man, what is good. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly in the sight of the Lord. Again, he has, notice, not he's showing you. Micah 6 says, he has shown thee. Oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. Sometimes we're, God, show me, show me, show me. And God says, I've already shown you. <laughs> this is the way. Now walk in it. Stop turning back and forth from the right to the left. This is the way. I've shown you. But you've got to walk in it now. You've got to take the steps and trust that that is the way of the Lord and walk it out in faith, in obedience. Let's stand together. Perhaps we'll... Leave our time there and let the Lord settle that into our hearts.